My decision to fire all four officers was not based on some sort of hierarchy. Mr. Floyd died in our hands, and so I, I, I see that as being complicit. So that, that is about as much as I, and I apologize to the Floyd family. All right. Welcome to the Solve for Why vlogcast. Of course, it is myself, Christian Soto, host of the show with my co-host, Matt Berkey. We just saw the police chief of Minneapolis say that he's sorry for what happened and silence is complicit. And I think we need to talk about some things. We definitely have some major problems. We have a problem with police training. We have a problem with the black community and minorities not having thought leaders. We have a problem with white privilege, that of which sometimes is not even acknowledged by white people. We have a problem of police versus citizens in multiple states. So throughout this entire podcast, we're going to talk about all of it. Before this podcast began, I invited Anna Kate onto the podcast. I took a lot of heat for that. I took a lot of heat for inviting Anna Kate onto the podcast, saying that, you know, she's a radical, she's part of the MAGA, she doesn't have, she shouldn't have a platform here. And one of the discussions that I had with you, Berkey, yesterday was that on this platform, if we're going to reach outside of poker, if we're going to be influencers in any way, we can't necessarily build an echo chamber. So even though I, I probably disagree with a lot of her views, I didn't want to say I only want to promote my views even though that is what I see happening on Fox News, on potentially even networks that I watch like CNN, they're very echo chambery. So there's a lot of topics here and it's gonna get emotional. You and I on pre-production had a lot of arguments yesterday that we ended up fleshing out. But the first topic I wanna to talk about is police versus citizens. I want to preface this by saying I don't think the police job is an easy one. I don't think that they are tasked with an easy duty of being the ones that actually have to put forth the enforcement of what is being told to them. But what I'm seeing in these clips, and of course, I also want to preface it with their clips. We, At times, we don't know the full story. But what we're seeing, at least on my end, is very similar to a war zone where it's like you're seeing these like outlandish kind of acts of being just not really human like they're just like treating it as like as a war zone what are your thoughts when you see these clips some of these there's like a a fraction of a debate as far as like well tactically speaking what what else are they supposed to do kind of stuff mm -hmm. um like i've seen that new york city one where they go through the barricade yeah from like four different angles and each angle demonstrates a different layer or level of threat that the police may have been under but at every angle they had a different path to escaping right so at every angle you look at reverse was an option and they chose not to take it because you know again whether they're regressing to their training or not uh they kind of have free license at this point so i think like your analogy here is i've never been to war i don't know but it seems like a reasonable one i've read a lot of you know, Jocko Willick and, uh, and Goggins, and, you know, they speak about the battle lines and how the enemy effectively has a face. And, you know, they draw these hard lines in the sands where everything is strategic, everything is tactical, and everything is just to be implemented without question. And 
you get a lot of civilian casualties when that takes place, mm-hmm. right? It's their job when they are overseas to mitigate that and reduce it as much as possible, but never at the expense of an American life. And unfortunately, I see these sides, this this line in the sand being drawn here, where there's no discernment between peaceful protest and looters and the tactics being utilized by the quote-unquote foot soldiers in this instance, the police, is to just divide and conquer, right? It's just this desire to disperse the crowd before it becomes a threat because they don't want to have to discern between peaceful protests, people, people who are just exercising their First Amendment right versus people who are bad actors that are out looting and, and doing whatever else. That's their job, right? Like their job is to be able to identify and separate. Like it, it seems unfair to, and we will talk about just like them versus the press as well, which is like completely mm-hmm. unacceptable. Uh, but they have the capacity, they have multiple agencies working on all this. Like they should be able to identify like, okay, like you're not guilty by association because there are looters in the crowd. Doesn't mean the crowd is a negative. Agreed. But tactically speaking, this is where the issue presents is tactically speaking. They are taught that a crowd poses a threat, right? So it's, it's the crowd itself that is being uh, objectified as a threat, Mm -hmm. not necessarily the people or the intentions behind the crowd. And that's unfortunate because now we have this, massive uh conundrum where there are conflicting ideologies right it's our god-given right to protest and do so in a peaceful organized manner correct their tactical training says don't allow that to take place because a crowd is dangerous that seems like a, a they problem it is the they problem for sure it's we're identifying why uh this anarchy that's taking place and why it appears that things are moving closer and closer to a police state because the people who have the power aren't willing to discern between good and bad actors. I do want to talk about training. I think that, you know, while, while going over all of this, I ran into some of like how, how they train. Right. And the big, the big talking point here is simply like de-escalation versus violence. Mm-hmm. Right. And the 2015 police executive board, had put out this stat that it's when they're training, it's eight hours of de-escalation, 129 hours of weapons and fighting. Wow. So even if they're off, let's just say this is not precisely accurate. Mm-hmm. This ratio, regardless, is really off-putting. Yeah. This is not a ratio that, you know, this incites violence pretty much. Like there is no de-escalation. So... I wonder what the the ratio is by comparison for like uh, a British Bobby who doesn't have a gun to carry. Probably. It's got to be the opposite, right? Right. Almost certainly. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It just, so regardless of whatever, you know, stats are, can be, you know, manipulated or you can look at a different person at a different forum or whatever. But the point is, the point still remains. If this is anywhere close to accurate, which I think at this point, the universal consensus is that there needs to be more de-escalation training. Mm -hmm. Then the problem begins with the training, right? It's like, as you're saying, 
we're training them to understand that crowds are negative, but at the same time, we have a right to protest, right. that of which consists of crowds. So we're not training police officers to de-escalate. We're training them to enforce violence. And that culture amongst themselves, like, you know, if you're if you're in that culture, that just breeds that together, right? There's there's also an inherent bias that's being trained that nobody seems to want to acknowledge, but it just happens to be true. Like and, and it's it's through no fault. Like I, I want to be sensitive with my wording here because I don't want to I don't want to remove fault from anybody, but what I'm getting at is it's a fault of the job more so than each individual. Uh, it takes a lot of work to, to program out, but effectively when you're a cop on the beat and you are conti continually dealing with criminal activity on a day-to-day -day basis, that criminal activity is going to trend towards minorities. And that is a byproduct of the social economic divide that we have in this country. Right. So let's forget about the root cause, whether or not that's racism, whether or not that's just a system holding them back or, or whatever the case may be. Let's just acknowledge that it exists. There's an economic divide between minorities and white people, period. Right. Yes. That we're, which we're trying to mend. Of right. Course, but yes. Right. So that lends itself to now poverty or impoverished people being more likely to turn to crime to get by, to survive. Right. When that's the case, that becomes the face of what you're dealing with day in and day out, right? Right. And now you begin to stereotype. Now you begin to profile. So if 200,000 white people show up to protest Hillary Clinton and Clinton Gate or, or whatever mm. in support of Trump, nothing happens. Right. But if 200,000 people... Which is what we've been seeing. Exactly. Right. But if 200,000 people of mixed ethnicities show up, they have the face that the authority is used to dealing with from a profile standpoint. So the intentions are assumed to be bad. Mm -hmm. So this is an inherent bias and it's racially motivated and we will classify it or clarify it as racist. But what I'm saying is it's forget the label. It's just conditioned, right? It's conditioned into the job. Right. So this happens in, you know, I think Wisconsin was like the first, the first state to have this where they actually train for, not like to remove this biases, mm -hmm. right? Because it's true. For example, if, if you just see uh, a woman asking for help and there's a black person on top of her trying to help and the police come, they think that person caused harm. Where if it was a different person, a white woman helping a white woman, there is just like, oh, she's trying to help. They're training the police to not hesitate. Mm -hmm. And the reason is, is because if they, at least how they believe is, if they hesitate, their life is at risk or their partner is at risk. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, honestly, it's, it's a, it's a major talking issue that I've personally been passionate about for a long time with gun reform for everybody who is clamoring that their second amendment rights are so important to protecting their family, their property, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, okay, I think that's a logical ar argument, right? Like we should have some ability to protect ourselves. Mm. My issue has always been that exact scenario. There's a difference between owning a gun and owning a gun with the intent to kill or the intent to uh, demobilize somebody, right? And my big thing was it's not enough to own a gun or to be trained. If somebody breaks into your house, you don't know what their intentions are. And as a human being, 
my instinct is not to kill someone, even mm -hmm. if I'm under threat, right? Right. So I'll brandish the weapon, and I'll say I have a gun, and I'll warn this person, but all I'm doing is giving him the strategic upper hand. So I don't necessarily think from a civilian standpoint that being armed does all that much for us, right? I think it only complicates the problem in a lot of ways. That's not to say that I disagree with the Second Amendment and that we should somehow abolish it, but I do lean towards gun reform, obviously. Um, as far as now going into the tactics of police training, this is the problem we have, right? It's very difficult to train into defense. Mm -hmm. It's not like martial arts. This problem isn't that challenging from a martial arts standpoint. When you remove the gun element and it's just fist versus fist, the way that martial arts are often trained is offense through defense, right? Right. You disarm somebody, right? Even if they do have a weapon and you don't, you're trained to disarm, not to engage, right? And it's very challenging for us to basically put ourselves in a gunfight over and over again as good guys, bad guys, and hesitate and teach any sort of like defense into that. With the way it's currently being treated, what is the resolution if we understand their job is to not hesitate? There's a couple of things. There's there's many issues with with all this. So first thing, I want to address what happens when a negative event happens with a cop, mm -hmm. right? So firstly, cops and the DA, they're they're not like they're separate entities, but they work together, right? Right. So when a police does a negative act. It's very difficult now for their coworker, which is the DA, that of which they need hand in hand, mm -hmm. right? So them to then turn around and say like, okay, I need to prosecute my own cops, right? Because then when you prosecute this cop, he has friends on the force. Those people are not going to turn around and then be like so helpful to you next time. It's a system. Right. Yeah. So that's a huge uh, conflict of interest right away. Like, we need to remove that separation. The same DA that needs these police, that needs the police to... It should never be an internal system. There should Correct. be third-party checks and balance. Immediately, Agreed. right? That's, that's check number one. The second thing that nobody really wants to talk about is the police unions. They make it really hard for, for, them to, for these checks and balances to exist. For example, if they do have these body cams, they get to see the police often get to see the body cam footage before it's released to anybody else and then make a statement. Other times when there's a shooting, the group gets 24 hours to, to present their statement about what just happened. Now they just gather all of their ducks in a row. Oh, you saw what I did there. Mm. A little, a little, uh, a little thing for you, a little idiom. Uh, they gather all their ducks in a row and then have a collective statement, that of which has no holes because they've had 24 hours. This doesn't exist in, in, other, in other scenarios. When, when a negative event happens, they immediately get questioned and separated. Mm -hmm. doesn't exist here. They get time and the ability to coordinate. They basically get to hack the prisoner's dilemma. So right. instead, of, instead of two prisoners or two accused being separated and having to arrive at the equilibrium, they basically get to cooperate Correct. and choose the equilibrium. Right. Correct. So, so again, are... a third party handling this. In, uh, so so instead of there being internal investigations, it should be external investigations, basically. Correct. And now, because police are, are 
are such a trusted body, mm -hmm. then there's this third negative event where it's like when you get vouched for by the police, if you're a political person, if you are anywhere connected in the political body, when you get endorsed by the by the police, that is a huge positive event for you in that city, in that state, in, in that county, whatever. That's also tying into you can't just turn around and then like fire your police chief or fire these people because they endorsed you they put you on this platform or at least were part of it so there's just too many conflicting interests in that in that system to now turn around and then check them right so the first thing before anything else we need to start separating these these systems and start saying we need third body independent that are not associated with these people to be able to check them that's first now we also need the ability to have more de-escalating training. This is ridiculous. Like th these stats of weapons and fighting versus de-escalation, like it's protect and serve, not fight. Like that's not, that's not the, the motto here, right? So I think we need to start, I understand the job's hard. I understand the job's dangerous. I understand that they're putting their life on the line. I'm not deaf to that. Mm -hmm. But I think that on the other end, they should not be deaf to the outcries that the people are saying which is you are hurting us. We don't, we're, we're starting to lose trust in the system because when something goes wrong it, and it goes wrong a little bit too often, according to them, there's no way to check you. And there's, there's just too much violence being placed on our community. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of it is twofold. Number one, the floor by which we're judging crime is probably too low. So this goes back to the, the war on drugs and other things that by all means are probably misdemeanors, right? It, it allows an entry point to racially profiling people and having escalation take place over something so minuscule. I can't tell you how many like instances of unjust violence or deaths that I've seen over the last five or six years that were based on a routine traffic stop, that were based on mm -hmm. a guy trying to spend a $20 bill that was just assumed to be counterfeit and was proven not to be uh, based on a guy selling loose cigarettes right. on the street. This is, this is not crime that's hurting anybody, right? Correct. Like these are all just reasons to engage with somebody that you are deeming to be a potential greater threat, which is almost across the board unfounded. I, I can't think of a single instance in history where a mass murderer or a tyrant or somebody who posed a national threat was apprehended because their taillight was out right. or because they were engaging in petty crime and you know their rap sheet was then founded out thereafter right i'm sure it's happened but certainly not often enough to justify basically bullying mm. the citizens so i think yeah big restructuring would take place or needs to take place. Um, you know, I don't know if that starts with defunding a lot of the police or if it starts with uh, changing the way that they get to operate. I, you know, there are a lot of issues that we can touch on here that aren't even necessarily, necessarily racially motivated, like the uh, illegal search and seizures that take right. place uh, where they're just able to, you know, if they find $50,000 on you, they just keep it and they spend it. And by the time, and then you have to fight it. Well, not only right. not only do you have to fight it, but if you win, you only get back what they didn't spend, mm. right? So there's there's all of these like loopholes that are in the favor of, uh, you know, a, a government that is overstepping its bounds, 
And we're certainly not doing enough. And I'm saying we collectively as citizens aren't doing enough to say like our rights are being infringed on. Instead, we're arguing with each other. We're arguing with each other whether or not we're allowed to shoot somebody who enters our home. We're arguing too much with each other of whether or not it's unjust that you get tailed because you're a different skin color than me. It's like, we can just accept that that's happening, right? The bigger issue at hand is we're allowing it to happen at scale because we're, we're targeting the wrong imagery, right? We're targeting the wrong enemy, if you will. Uh, the last thing that you kind of touched on is the de-escalation versus escalation. That's a byproduct of teaching offense versus defense, mm -hmm. right? And what is unclear to me because I'm not tactically trained and I don't know enough is how to teach proper defense when you are entering a potentially hostile environment. I don't know. Like To me, it's logical that if a police officer is trained for six months, which I doubt they are, but let's hypothetically speaking, say that they are, Yeah. that the first half of that is them without their gun, right? And it's just, you're unarmed. Mm -hmm. You are at a disadvantage. Work your way through that scenario because those scenarios are going to present themselves, right? And more importantly, it forces you to be considerate of the fact of whether or not you're opposition is going to use force but they just train to the extremes they train to the worst case scenarios yeah. where it's you are outnumbered and they're armed how are you going to get out of that scenario and that's important but what's most common let's move on to a separate topic which is the police versus the press the press in this situation is pretty much like a neutral party right there they are there to cover the news but there's been instances where the press has been in the middle. They've gotten arrested. They got harmed. Who are they aiming that at? Now he's shooting at the photographer. Like directly at us. Directly. Why are they doing that? They're shooting at our crew. This TV reporter was hit by police pepper balls during the Louisville protest. I really would like to know what part of the camera is threatening. No, it's a clear overstep of of power. Like it was a massive overreach. There's no justifying any of that. So the bigger question is, is there a problem with police and press at this time with press covering this? Like, it seems as if the problem is that, I don't know, is it an underlying issue? Is, is, it, is it something that they just like don't want to be covered right now? Like, somebody what is, somebody what, didn't get the message or there's some internal message being sent that we're not privy to as the public. Right, and this is what Omar said. Omar, you know, they they kind of drilled him on on you know when he was released, like, hey, like, what were the conversations like? What happened when you were in the car? How did they treat you, etc. And then he said, like, they treated me well, and they said like it wasn't even their call. They got orders and they followed through. Mm -hmm. So it's not only the police, like it's it's that like they're getting orders and they're just moving forward, right? So it's not the police that actually arrested. Omar's fault. Right, right. He's getting an order from someone else and he just has to follow. Mm -hmm. Period. The bigger question is are they infringing on our rights to cover these? Of things? course. Of course. Like that's that's a, a non discussion, right? Like for for ages, wars were fought with reporters, right? And you know, dating all the way back to like colonial times. They would have the drummer and the flag carrier and things like that. And it was just kind of like an unwritten rule 
that these people were to be protected by both sides. Like they weren't targets, right? It seems as though there's no discrimination between who is being targeted in this melee at this point. And my fear is that that goes both ways, right? So my fear is that as it escalates and more media members are being shot with pepper balls and more media members are being arrested and more civil protesters are being harmed. I, I mean, there are just a flood of examples that come to mind. Uh, one super tragic one that we saw towards the end of our meeting yesterday where that little boy was shot on the hill. It's like, this stuff is gruesome and unnecessary, of course. But as it escalates, it, it's escalating, right? It's going back to the, to the framework that they're taught. Escalation versus de-escalation. Mm -hmm. And it's escalating things. And the problem I see is that it's favorable for the powers that be to escalate this, right? Because the fact of the matter is they're a well-oiled machine. The United States military and the derivatives thereof, which will be the National Guard, the state police, the police, et cetera, are trained. They're, they're trained assassins, so to speak, right? They are winners when it comes to war. And if this escalates up the line to becoming a war, peaceful protest is going to fundamentally crumble. And my fear is that now there won't be any dis discernment being utilized towards how cops are treated either, right? So the second that they stop treating peaceful protesters and media respectfully, the collective now stops treating cops respectively. Right, I, I think... I think we're nearing respect. I think we're nearing that point where it's like yeah the argument is that the looters and the protesters represent black lives matter. Mm -hmm. And you and I had this this discussion and that's just fundamentally not true, right? To the Venn diagram, right? Mm -hmm. There might be some looters who are part of the movement. Right. There are probably a lot that aren't. Just like there are some police who are criminal and are quick to to cause harm to innocent people but most of them are not correct and that's the discussion honestly that i did want to have with with anna kate if she was if she wanted to come on the podcast was that discussion of if people view the looters as part of black lives matter of part of this movement if that's the premise we're working on then why does the kkk and trump and the kkk and maga why do they get a pass? Right. Right. Like why, why don't those two things go together? Because they're, they're quick to separate in that scenario. Mm -hmm. But when we try to separate, listen, black lives matter. The people in this protest are not the same people looting, or at least they don't represent us as a whole. They don't, that, that conversation is not being, that not being had by them, or at least not being, they're not listening. I, I think it's just the direct impact, right? People, people have a lot of dissidents. So when you are a small business owner and you're seeing shops getting looted, mm. you fear that your shop is next. You fear that your business is next to crumble. You, feel your, you fear your business is next to burn, right? So you want action taken immediately and you want that to cease. So now the enemy becomes the group that is the potential threat. So it's easy to turn on the entire movement, not segregating the good actors from the bad, right? Mm -hmm. When a hate group like the KKK 
shows support for a political party and you're aligned to that political party, it's very easy to just dismiss and just say, well, he, that group doesn't represent me. I understand that. I, I, I really wish I was able to have this discussion because why in the Black Lives Matter and the looters, et cetera, why is it the discussion of there are good people on both sides not had at all? Right. It's because uh, of the existential threat, right? The looting poses an existential threat to very comfortable white America, period. It makes us uncomfortable, right? Because they pose a threat. And more importantly, they represent the stereotype that has been, been in operation for decades. Mm-hmm. Thugs. Right. Our president is is labeling them this way. Right. Right. And now all of a sudden, when we face an existential threat, we have to identify the enemy. Because that's what tribals tribalism does to you. It forces you to put a target on that which you don't agree with. And we've we're this is my fear is that the gravity is pulling white America towards seeing the movement as a collective negative. Whereas when you take a hate group, it's very easy to just say that's illogical. America doesn't agree with the KKK. So I can just disassociate myself because there's no existential threat. I'm white. Mm -hmm. They're not going to burn a cross in my lawn. They're not going to do anything to harm me. Correct. Right. So now, and we went deep into this discussion yesterday. It becomes a matter of like, is inaction action? I think so. Um, We'll definitely get into that uh, at the end. I want to ask you this question because I don't understand it and I'm not white. So do you think there's white privilege and why do some people that are white don't think it exists? If, yeah. if, if Regardless of which side you're on. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think part of it is messaging, right? So the I, I think a big issue is that people feel attacked when you specify their bubble. Mm. So by calling it white privilege, you don't know me, man. I grew up hard. Mm. Like, fuck you. You don't know what it was like to be poor living. With... That's bullshit, right? Because that's not what we're talking about. Right. We're talking about privilege as a whole, right? And privilege as a whole starts with everybody who was born in this country, period. I, I don't care about your race, right? Yeah. And then it it fractions off. It splinters off. And there are greater layers of privilege. Yes. And you can fall under one camp of privilege, many camps of privilege, all camps of privilege, right? And the issue is, again, there's a lot of dissidence. It's easy to cognitively separate yourself from that which you can't quantify. So I can't quantify how much my whiteness has helped me in my life. Mm-hmm. But I'm rational enough to know that it has. I'm rational enough to know that I can walk down the street without fear. I'm rational enough to know that you know, when I'm in a public place, more people are going to look like me than not look like me. Mm-hmm. And I'm rational enough to recognize that I feel comfort when I'm surrounded by homogeny and discomfort when I'm surrounded by, you know, something that looks foreign, right? I have a, a, a sense of anxiety when it comes to travel because all of that gets taken away when I'm in a foreign land, right? right? I don't know how to protect myself if I just get dropped off in the middle of Colombia and I don't have the same privilege there that I have here. And if people would think in that framework, they would recognize 
the massive distance set between minorities and and the majority, right? right? They're walking around in their own skin in their own country with the same fear that I would have walking down the streets of Colombia, because I'm a target there. Why do you think then? Because there are people that would argue slavery happened a while ago. Sure, the civil rights movement has passed, and people are not like there are no more slaves. There's equal opportunity. There's the land of the free. Mm-hmm. Like it seems like that message is not accepted. Well, the the thing is, is that that's white people trying to settle their guilt, right? It, it's it's us trying to reconcile the fact that we're not willing to necessarily get our hands dirty to make this problem disappear. And in turn, because of that, we're somewhat contributing to it. So what I mean by all this is that it's good to be in America, period, Mm -hmm. right? It's better to be here than most other civilized nations. And that's even with the oppression, right? For most. Mm -hmm. So it's easy to to stand on your soapbox and say, if you don't like it, get out. You know what's interesting, Burke? Like you, like it, it would be easy for you to take that stance. I think, like yeah. someone like you, came from poverty, like your parent, your 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 mom had had drug uh, problems. Your your dad had other problems. Like like you didn't come from what would be considered a typical privileged scenario. Like sure. you know, so it would be easy for you to say like there is no such thing as white privilege. I wasn't privileged, you know, so. Yeah, I want to commend you for for at least taking the the overall stance and understanding like through through like an eagle's eye of of how it, how it seems. I do want to play the the video that you submitted. I live in an affluent neighborhood in Austin, Texas, and if I ever go to my mailbox and I see a white woman walking up to the mailbox, I consciously sit in my car because I don't want her to feel like I'm a threat. If I'm on an elevator with a white person, I try to hit the button first and get off the elevator first because I don't want them to perceive me as a threat because I realize at any point in time, whiteness can be weaponized. We saw that this past week, Amy Cooper, Central Park, the woman who called the cops on a black man who wanted her to leash her dog because it was illegal to walk your dog without a leash. And she used two words that are a death sentence for black people. When she called the cops, she said, there's a black man who's threatening my life. Both of those things as far as when you compile them together, were a lie. Because that black man, he was a bird watcher. And while so many people saw that incident and they were heartbroken, I, as a black man, saw that incident and was reminded of 1955. Emmett Till, 14-year-old boy who was lynched, mutilated, and killed by two white men because a white woman made a false claim saying that he flirted with her. I think that circles back to what you're seeing. Like, why do we have this need to put a face to an enemy and why is that enemy black right i I think like he really nailed it by saying like weaponizing whiteness is one of the greatest threats that the other side feels right so i don't ever have to consciously think about the way that i look Mm -hmm. whenever i'm living my day-to-day life now growing up in the 90s when gangster rap first hit the scene and hip-hop was kind of taking over the the pop culture and stuff like that I was young and impressionable and I was getting a different type of uh, understanding of it all, right? Like growing up in a tiny little rural town outside of Pittsburgh, I got a lot of guff for wearing my hat backwards, right? Because it was one of those things where it's like, you can only get away with this because your town is totally white. And if you were to walk through a black neighborhood, 
Like you're stealing their, their kind of culture. And this is not a good way for you to blend. Mm. But like all of that is irrational. That That's just not a thing. You know what I mean? And if it is a thing, we made it a thing. We were the ones who shined a light on the differences and said, we scorned that which does not adhere to us. Mm. Right? That kind of thing. And I think that happened through a lot of channels. I think religion's kind of one of them. Right? Like even our religion is segregated. Right. Baptist. Christianity, they both fall under the same umbrella, right? But the thing is, is one is wholeheartedly Southern and black, and the other one is almost across the board white. And you just force these people into a divide, despite the fact that they can rally around the same message. And that's that's tragic. I, I, I spoke to this a little bit last week, where I said pride is the ultimate fall of any great society, right? And in this instance, that's precisely what's happening. White pride is forcing black people into being ashamed or into minorities into being ashamed of what they are to the point where they're conscious of it. So this week, Trump makes a speech. We're not going to play the speech because it was super long. Um, but after the speech where he, you know, calls for dominating, calls for, you know, strong military presence in states that can't get control of this. After that, he he walks across the street, has a, a photo op in front of the church. I want to play the reaction from the bishop about this. First of all, this is an excruciating moment, a crisis moment in our country where we need healing, where we need reconciliation, and we need justice. Um, and the president, um, after um, speaking the remarks that you summarized and clearing with tear gas and riot-geared police the, the park yeah. and the courtyard of our church, stood in front of St. John's and held up a Bible as if, as if it were spiritual um, uh, validation and justification for a message that is antithetical to the teachings of Jesus and to the God of justice. This is a play for Trump's base, yeah. which is like, we're going to be strong on, on security. We're going to be strong on war and we're going to be strong in our uh, faith. Yeah. Right. If you had a call to the governor saying you have to dominate, that was aired out. Um, some people agree with that. He cleared out the protesters slash rioters slash looters to make way for his, photo op in front of a church and that makes a play for both the people that are strong on security as well as his f religious base to so be clear it was only protesters uh, fair it was middle of the afternoon in front of a an episcopal church it was peaceful protest that yeah. he unleashed i think it's important to display this right well it, it he unleashed yeah. tear gas and rubber bullets on a crowd of people who were outside of a church simply protesting all that ails this country right now mm. in order to get a photo op to leverage the hardcore conservative Christian into maintaining their vote for Trump. How much role do you think religion should play in politics? Zero. Literally zero. Social issues largely shouldn't be involved in politics. For everybody who cries for a smaller government, they always do it from the economic standpoint. They want less social programs. They want less funding here, there, or the other way, or, or the other way, right? 
we should be asking for less government involvement in our lives, right? There is no way we should ever tolerate a, a candidate pandering to our religious beliefs. There is a separation between church and state. It doesn't matter. This is such a non-starter. Yet every single year or every single election cycle, it's one of the major talking points. Mm -hmm. Same thing with social issues, right? Like how on earth is it ever a debate whether or not your candidate stands for gay, lesbian, et cetera, et cetera, LG, oh, I'm never going to get this entire acronym. It keeps adding. LGBTQ. <laughs> Q, right. How are we ever electing someone who is not for their rights? It's a given. It's not a talking point. It's a non-starter, right? So like the platforms that should be run on are economic reform, foreign policy, medi medical and, and other social programs that may or may not be necessary. These are where we should be dividing our lines. What do you, what, okay. I'm going to play devil's advocate because I think it's important. What yeah. do you say to the people that says like, okay, but this is how we live our lives. This, these are our beliefs and we want someone in power that believes in our beliefs. We don't want someone. I would say that this is systemically where the problem starts from. You want someone that looks like you. Stop it. Stop it here. Stop it now. This is this is non-invasive. You being able to accept an atheist as a president, and let me be very clear, we've had many of them. I don't care what front they've put up, right? If you can start to accept somebody who doesn't bring religion into politics, then you can start to think rationally. And the more rationally you begin to speak, the more accepting you will be of somebody who doesn't adhere to your lifestyle. Somebody who is gay, somebody who's a different color, somebody who is a different uh, ethnicity, right? Like we have these issues that are systemic to us because we've somehow painted white people with the same brush, not recognizing the differences between all of us, right? There's a massive difference. Like, like I'm a mix of Italian, Slovak, and Pennsylvania Dutch. And then the next white guy is a mix of Eastern European countries. And the next white guy is a mix of other European countries, you know what I mean? It's like, when did we get to the point where we were okay with just calling all of us the same and then segregating all the other races as, as being vastly different? Mm. It's cultural, right? And we should have an American culture by now. We're old enough. It's really interesting that you say that because like probably last year, maybe the year before when we were discussing if I was like Hispanic or Latino or Spanish or... You know, it was really tough to figure that out. I'm, I still, um, anyway, throughout the whole discussion, it was, you know, as I was reading and, and doing this whole thing, it was like, there was a really interesting evolution of how people merge into white. Mm -hmm. So before white fell under a very smaller umbrella, a small umbrella of people, of, of races. Yeah, right, right? yeah, yeah. Uh, not races, but backgrounds. Right. Uh, then, rat nationalities, exactly. Um, then, you know, there was there was like, these two out outliers, which were like Jews and Italians, mm -hmm. right? Then eventually, because of economic reasons, they began to identify as white, right? right? And eventually, they were accepted as white. Now, they're just white. We just know that. We're getting into a, a place where sections of the Hispanic or especially Hispanic, I would say uh, the lighter Hispanics 
are beginning to identify similarly in that in that merging into white mm-hmm. where it's like lighter skin uh affluent spanish people from colombia venezuela cuba sections of the dominican republic are beginning to identify as white but when we break it down it's all been because of a socioeconomic reason nothing else so what do you think about that what do you think about that move towards wanting to be white because of that it probably fuels the fire for a greater problem Mm. because the more we portray it that whiteness is the advantage the more not being white becomes a disadvantage correct that that clip we just saw that is an affluent black man who played in the nfl and is wildly successful more successful than you and i are ever likely to be and he feels the need to press the button on the elevator first to get off first to pose himself as not a threat right this is a guy who has fundamentally every privilege afforded to him except whiteness Mm -hmm. and he has to wait to go to his mailbox because he doesn't want to pose an existential threat to somebody who's uncomfortable with a very large athletic looking man mm-hmm. bearing down on them right so this is a problem like if we are going to further create a divide and further populate right like cuz the fact of the matter is if we really blew it up and we really dissected people we would just be americans right like the whole debate you and i had uh, as far as like the dominican versus spanish my my whole question was like always why did you take so much pride in the spanish side why not just take pride in being Dominican? That makes mm. sense. And I was like, you know, that would be like me cherry picking my Italian side and dismissing the the rest of my background, which honestly, from where I grew up, that happened. That happened a lot. Mm-hmm. Like it was prideful to be Italian in, in the greater Pittsburgh area. And it was very quick. You would very quickly like dismiss your Polish side or, or whatever, because there were stereotypes to that. To that. So, uh, you know, it happens beyond skin color for sure. Uh, you know, there there was nothing but Polish jokes where I grew up mm-hmm. about how dumb they were, right? And as a kid, you kind of grow up believing that. And then you find out that, you know, this is just formed out of prejudice. Correct. And And prejudice just naturally exists. So I think that, like, we end up being better served. If we, if we recognize that we're tribal by nature, which just happens to be true, then what I think we're better served as is a bunch of very small tribes that make up one unit in America. And we can all rally behind the fact that we're American. I think that if that can ever come to be, that makes us stronger. And it puts us in a position where now suddenly we don't feel anxious whenever we're surrounded by people who don't look like us. I'm with you, man. I This is this is the the circle that I think where there still needs to be checks because... A lot of people would argue and say, we do live in America. There are no slaves. We are at the point where we accept everybody. I hire black people. I hire Spanish people. I hire Latinos, whatever. Mm. Right. But the the racial undertone is still there. And this goes so deep, you know, where I'm just going to say, like, I don't think there's room for any Confederate statues, Confederate flags, Confederate anything Mm. like I understand where people come from with that. They want to feel as if their family fought for something. They want to feel as if 
the lives taken in the South by their family was for nothing, was, was not for nothing. Yep. Right. I understand that, but that's also selfish. Right. They're on the wrong side of history. Correct. Yeah. The, it, and what we find is that statues were built and put up after the civil war was over. Like when Martin Luther King, when all these things were going up, like th throughout that movement, statues were being put up. Yeah. This was like 1950, 1960s. Like why are statues being put up during this exact time? It's clearly, sorry. It's clearly a signal of what they believe in. hundred percent. Right. Yeah. So it's cultural. Like, like, like I said, this all boils back down to pride and we're not going to solve racism on this show. Right. And we're not going to solve the pride issue that most people feel and, and suffer through on the show either. But your, your point is very valid, right? The more that we play into the fact that, uh, the, the, like the more we celebrate the Confederacy as a culture, I'm from Pennsylvania, man. We are very far from the South. We are hundreds and hundreds of miles from the Mason Dixon line. And there are Confederate flags all over rural PA because they line themselves as hillbillies mm. and they want to be a part of that culture. And the more we celebrate that, the more that we give fuel and the more we engage in the pride that ultimately is driven by hate towards something that we're trying to ra ratify. I understand why they want it in, in a historical sense. They want to feel their family stood for something. They weren't losers, anything like that. But the greater issue is that those statues represent a portion in history and, and I'm not saying to erase history. I'm just saying statues are built to glorify something, right? Statues are built to remember things in honor of something. History is in a museum. History is in a history class in college. History is, has, has just no place there. It, right. That, they, that's the they, truth. Sh they should be embarrassed. You don't see any, I'm not telling people how to feel. I'm just, calling a spade a spade you don't see any statues uh erected based on the kent state massacre right which was protesting the vietnam war you don't see anybody trying to make an argument that we were on the right side of history with the vietnam war we just acknowledge it as a country we fucked up right and the civil war is a similar black eye it shouldn't have come to that mm -hmm. right so aligning yourself with the south saying like we got robbed in that one things should be different what is what is fundamentally wrong with you? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it's just like, you, obviously it's a lack of education. Obviously it's leaning into culture and pride for something that is a big L and a big black eye in, in our history. And, you know, culturally that needs to change, but it won't change until we have a collective culture to get behind. So when we can't even agree on what our missteps were as a nation, when we're, when we're still too young and too ignorant, to understand that, you know, this is all born out of us effectively being, uh, I mean, just going all the way back to like the looting and, and things like that. This is all born out of how we arrived at our freedom to begin with, right? Mm -hmm. Our forefathers, if they took the approach of, I don't see why people are looting. It's so unnecessary. It just uh, hurts the cause more than helps it. If our forefathers took that approach, we'd still be under Britain rule, right? They were disruptors. They recognized that there was going to only be one outcome that led to our independence, and that was a revolution. And unfortunately, you have to crack a few eggs to make an omelet. It's well documented that Robert E. Lee didn't want 
statues of himself or anything like that. So even with Robert E. Lee saying that, they still move forward with building statues of both him and that and that representation of... of I mean, him. it goes even deeper. Look at how we treat indigenous people. Right. We still have a football team called the Redskins. Yeah. It, In it, 2020. Like, that's not even racist. It's just not acknowledging history. It's ignoring what we did to actually, you know, populate this country. It'd be like celebrating Christopher Columbus. And we do. We still have Columbus Day. It's a joke. Yeah. It's I, revisionist history. I think a lot of people make that argument of like, well, that's our history. We don't erase our history. Yeah, yeah. you don't erase it, but you can acknowledge where it was bad. Yeah, and, and I think that's that's the big disconnect, right? It's like, we're not trying to erase our history. We're just not trying to celebrate things that we unilaterally think are now just incorrect. Right. They, they, were, they were incorrect completely. Okay, let's move towards a discussion that I think you're very passionate about. And that is simply that black people and people of minority, like we don't have our own platforms and we don't have thought leaders to look to look at and and say like these are our guys, they represent our movement and these are their platforms. So in you looking for the Black Lives Matter movement and like what they represent and who are their leaders. It seems like you were struggling to find that. It's it's not that I was struggling to find the leaders. I know that they exist and I know who they are. And, you know, to, to speak to the point of like that the leaders aren't there, that's not true. Hip hop culture is born, you know, in a leadership role. It's It's adapted into a leadership role, right? It speaks to that pop culture. What I don't see is the bridging of the gap, uh, that video clip that we showed of, uh, the NFL player basically saying like, um, you know, whiteness is weaponized, et cetera, et cetera. Something else he mentioned earlier in the video that we didn't show was that, uh, in a large way, what's happening now with this movement, what's happening now with the violent revolt and everything else, it's a white person's problem. Right. And I don't mean to, to, to put a color or a race to it, but, what he's really saying is it's the majority's problem, not the minority, right? It's our problem to fix. The issue is there's no call to action. The incentives aren't aligned because our lives are happy, easy, and complacent right now. And though it's very easy for this collective of middle-class white America to empathize with, or at least to sympathize, I guess, with what's taking place and recognize the wrongdoing and the injustice, it's very difficult to act. So as somebody who's like behind it, that it's like, I agree with you. I agree with your stance. I agree with the actions you're taking. And I agree that there needs to be change. Mm-hmm. When I seek out more influence from that community, and I, it's like, I, I want more rhetoric. I want to hear intelligent people speak on this issue that hasn't plagued me. So I'm not nearly as versed in, you know, it's like anything mm-hmm. else. If I want to learn about fitness and nutrition, I start to vet experts. And I want to hear them in long form. And I can find 30 Joe Rogan discussions on it. Right. right? Those platforms aren't being utilized. So I'm not being spoken to. Yes, it's unfortunate that Joe Rogan is not being utilized. Right. But I think it's it's a bigger problem than that. It's like we don't have our own platforms. Well, you don't have your own Joe Rogan. Yeah. But th- that that comes from like us, like, you know, 
not having that that level of of head start opportunity like not getting like spotify to like give us a shot not getting apple well, to just I, I, I guess what i'm yeah. saying is like let's look at it through a proper lens and not compare apple to apple okay the minority group does have a platform it's hip-hop right and it's it's huge massive right right so let's not say that there isn't a large platform there is mm. the problem is it doesn't lend itself to education the same way that uh, a podcast platform does or mainstream media or whatever the case may be all yeah. of those things are against the movement and that's a problem mainstream media is painting two sides of the same story and they're both just heavily biased right so we're not getting I, i'm getting a one minute clip of killer mike i'm getting a, a three minute clip of other activists who are speaking out passionately, Cornell West, wh whatever the case may be, right? I don't want that. I want a two hour long discussion so I can really recognize the brilliance behind his life's work that has gone into this. And so the more hoops you make me jump through to get that, the easier it's gonna be for me to just be white and complacent. Are you, okay. When this subject comes up, mm -hmm. right? These people are tired of people like you saying like i want to hear you on joe rogan oh of course you know course. they're just like like come on like now you want to listen like i've been doing this my entire life so the the question is i don't think we need them on another person's platform i think what we need is to be able to have this group of people have their own platform that's meaningful whether that's their own podcast, whether that's their own shows, whether I'm sure they have books, I'm sure. But like having becoming more media moguls in other sections outside of hip hop and in education and in things that allow people to relate quickly with them and but on their own platform. I don't want them to feel the need to have to go on Joe Rogan, to have to go on Ellen, to have to go on anything like that. More Oprah's, I more of this. I understand. See what I'm it's it's, in my opinion though, that's pride getting in the way of progress. Go ahead. I put a tweet out earlier this week, or maybe it was right after last vlogcast, and it said something to the effect of, um, so basically what I was saying is our rational and our emotional sides, and I'm speaking for middle America, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm not speaking for the minorities necessarily or anything like that. I'm I'm saying people who, who I represent. Yeah. The reality of this is messy, right? Our rational and emotional sides are at odds. Seeing the injustices take place are clearly intolerable and they are very targeted. So that is something that I recognize as a problem and I recognize that I have some power to do something about it, right? Yeah. However, then there becomes a second subset, right? We see those who are in pain and are enraged with the situation seeking vengeance instead of justice because they feel they feel like they they are disempowered right they feel like there is no justice any longer and now it just needs to be an eye for an eye type of thing at the end of it all it's like i walk away and i feel helpless and because i feel helpless now i feel complicit now i feel like i'm a part of the problem mm -hmm. so what rogan offers that your suggestion of a new platform doesn't is a very specific demo and it's the demo that needs to be behind this movement to incite change, right? It's comfortable white people, specifically white men, mm. right? There is a large subset of us that don't want to align with the militant tyrant side of the government. Mm -hmm. But you're not doing anything to call us to action, right? 
and I, I don't want this to come out. I, I already hear it coming out wrong, right? Because it sounds so selfish. And it's not even to say that like, I wouldn't be side by side with you if you wanted to go fight this, right? Because I would, because I care. Because you and I have a different relationship than me and the masses, right? right? So what I'm saying is bring me along. I want to look to your thought leaders. I want to be more educated on this subject. I want to be invested enough so that as this escalates, I'm there with you arm in arm every step of the way. So that if radical measures are necessary, I'm too invested now to, rem to remind myself that I could have a better life doing nothing. Two things, because this is, this, is, this is important what you're saying. We need first to educate with the problem set. But then somewhere along the line, they become emotionally invested in the movement enough so that they don't bail. I, I think in the opposite order. Okay. I think right now, America's watching. Correct. And we're empathizing. So now they're emotionally invested. We are all emotionally invested in this side. We want the movement to win. The masses want the movement to win. Right. Right? So now, how do I get invested enough to take action? Right? How do you get me to a protest? I keep saying me, and I'm, I'm so hesitant to say this because now it's like I represent a group. Yeah. And I don't believe that to be true. It's not going to take as much to get me down there as it's going to take the average person who's making 75K a year and lives in the suburbs to a rally, right? My point is, how do you... This is a marketing issue. I, I hate to break this down into business schematics, but like, hey, if that's what the side that you're fighting against is doing, do the same. Because there is this large subsection of people who are empathizing drastically with the side that is on the right side of history here that can easily be swayed by a little misdirection, mm. by demonstrating police officers who are dying, right? Right. By tugging at the heartstrings of us to say, hey, this person looks like you and they're suffering in all of this too. Don't let that happen. Don't let that be a part of the final outcome. I don't want to be indifferent to this. Right. Because like when, when that large subsection of middle America is apathetic to this movement, the other side wins, right? It's not a fair distribution where if a large subset of the community is apathetic, then it's still just a small subset of minorities fighting a small subset of tyranny. That's not true. Mm -hmm. That apathy lends itself all to the, to the institutional system, uh, systemic racism, right? I want to look at things a little bit from the other side because I've tried, um, I think there is a place for Trump and the governors to be pretty hard on the looters, honestly. And it is it is their responsibility to protect their the, the citizens of the United States and the citizens of the states. Mm -hmm. So I am okay with them being hard on the looters, like protecting the businesses, protecting the people, protecting effectively carrying out their job. Yep. Right. I'm okay with that. So I am not 100% opposed to what Trump is exactly, like, okay, this is touchy because like he's right in some senses, in the, in the sense that he his job is to protect the American people. And there are people that are not part of this movement that are 
looting, that are hurting people, that are shooting cops, that are doing all these things. I think the distinction, though, and the, the distinction that people want is for him to say that that's not the movement. Right. And I think that's the standstill that we're on. Right. Where it's like, I'm in agreement that he should be hard on these people. I'm in agreement. I'm even in agreement that, like, okay, like, saying the word dominate is, like, not that bad. But if you're referring to the right people, okay. You know? I think the distinction where we're at is, like, it's just that. It's just saying... I hear you. I understand your movement. I am for, I'm in favor of your movement, but there's this group of people here that are making believe they're part of you, but they're actually hurting. But you know, none of that's true. Good. Right. Like you have to fundamentally know he's fanning the flames. He is all for inciting violence and squashing this movement before it gets any traction. Uh, and, and to be quite frank, as tragic as the looting and the, the, um, the mayhem and anarchy has been, it's very minimal compared to what it could be, right? Right. I saw some tragic things, and I hate the fact that they are going to be leveraged in a negative way, right? A former police officer who was in his 70s, uh, a black man in Minis or uh, St. Louis, rather, was defending his pawn shop and was shot and killed last night. Yeah. And it was sick, man. It was fucking disturbing. It was Facebook Live, the whole thing. Right, I literally watched a guy struggle for his last breath. It's tragic. It's absolutely awful. That doesn't represent what's taking place at scale. That is an anecdotal, isolated incident, just like the handful of police officers who've died in this particular fight against the movement is, is anecdotal and isolated. Right? There are bad actors in this world, and they are going to seize opportunities like this. Correct. That doesn't mean, and it doesn't disqualify, the conversation that we're having at large, as as a as a nation right now, right? And I think Trevor Noah like did a great job of outlining this. How can you expect there not to be looting? Right. How can you expect people who are at at the point of not knowing what else to do, to just act calmly and peacefully, especially when they suffer through economic trials, right? Yeah. A lot of these people who are looting. This, this can go all the way back to Katrina whenever uh, it hit New Orleans, right. right? We saw systemic racism happening there just through the mainstream media. They would see a white family looting and they would call yeah. them scavengers. Correct. And they would see a black family looting and they would call them looters. Correct. Yeah, right? That happens. Yeah. So it's just like recognize what you're really seeing is poor people trying to survive. I don't want this entire thing to be negative. So I do want to bring up some of the good things that police are doing, which is... Some of them are. Hold on, sorry, I, I don't. I don't want to derail this, but uh, I just want to make one more point with regards to the collectivism that we're trying to accomplish here and why it's so necessary. If we look at what the people who are trying to quell the Black Black Lives Matter movement have at their arsenal, we recognize that it's very organized, right? It's very. Let's say elaborate on that though, because okay, because a lot of people would say like organize how like like we're organized, we're out there, we're on the streets. Like okay, uh, I'm not saying that the the movement's disorganized, mm. but what I'm saying is that they're organized in a militant way, right? They have foot soldiers on the ground, and they have resources at their disposal, who are very prideful behind the work that they do. Who are their foot soldiers on the ground? What do you mean? And and I think this is good because it will carry into what you were trying to speak to. Mm -hmm. But largely speaking, we're talking about the United States military from top to bottom, right? So 
the actual military at a last resort down to the national guard down to state police down to local police mm -hmm. and they are now just simple uh, we talked about this on the onset of the podcast they are following orders right and that is their job that is their diligence they are not to parse information in real time they are simply to obey and and serve right execute right yeah on top of that there is this underbelly of america that are well-armed militia types that are all for anarchy and generally speaking that collective leans alt-right which means that they are on the side of anti-movement right so now if this escalates in any sort of capacity you have a bunch of drones who are willing to just get out there and mow down their own kind, right? They don't see us as Americans. They don't see us as people that they would interact with any longer. They see a clear divide between good and evil, right and wrong, black and white, right? Mm -hmm. That's a huge problem because these foot soldiers are being controlled by a select handful of bureaucrats who are ultimately being, being controlled by big money, right? They're being funded. When we look at the movement side of things, it's, it's, it's being driven by passion. It's emotional in nature, and it is certainly engaged right now by the entire United States. We are all watching, we are all empathizing, and we all want to be behind it. Mm -hmm. The problem is doubling back to why am I not hearing from the killer mics, from the, the Cornell West, and all these other, why am I not hearing more? It's because they're on the front lines, man. They're on the street. They are boots to the ground. They're the ones carrying out the picket signs and, and you know, organizing these marches. And they're right there engaging. They're leading from the front. Mm. So now there's nobody in the back rallying the troops, organizing the schematics. Some people would say they're real, though. They are real. But if we're talking about how we progress this forward, if we're talking about solving actual problems, right. having those voices heard, it has to come from a leadership standpoint. So let's, let's let's flesh this out because the reason I said that was because I think a lot of people would just say that like they're real people, like they're they're real, they're out in this, they're out with you, yeah. right? So what you're saying is the right that is controlling the other side of the messaging. You know, if, if they're a company, right? They yep. have executives yep. calling the shots. Then they have people. It, it just trickles all the way down. And not only that, it starts, the executive branch is the president, right? Right. So even those who don't align with that side, we turn to the executive branch for, this, for answers in these times of crisis. So he has an ear of the collective that is probably undeserved. Okay, so what you're saying is, people at the top whether that's the Koch brothers trump or or that entire side sure right then under that they probably have their their finger in media they have certain outlets to get their messaging out under that they have you know loyalists right and then under that they have the police yeah right so that's their their branch and they carry out their message and enforce the message at the end with the police mm -hmm. On the left side, we have people like like Don Lemon, Van Jones, uh, Trevor Noah, Jesse Jesse James. Is that, is that his name? Jesse James from from Grey's Anatomy. Um, 
And these guys that are like very common, especially people that are very passionate, but they don't have the level of organization that the other side has. Therefore, the messaging gets blurred uh, and not easily uh, or at least funneled. Right. And not easily digested by people that are looking for the messaging. And they don't necessarily have the structure and able to move forward with a target. Right. Is that that's that's what you're saying? Precisely. When we look at yesterday as being Blackout Tuesday, the the movement behind that was to amplify voices from the the Black Lives Matter movement. Right. The whole purpose was, hey, stop self-aggrandizing yourself for one day and amplify some voices that can give us direction. Correct. All I saw was a bunch of black pictures on the screen. Mm. Yeah, and I, people call heat for it too. Uh, there were people that were like, they would post the the black thing and then like post something about their business, and like people didn't like that. Right. Like they they were like, I don't want to see you uh, doing hamstring curls right now about your fucking personal gym business that yeah. you have. Like after you just posted, like this is not the time for that. And I agree. I I, I think that I commend certain businesses for what they do. Like you know, Bank of America. I saw release like a hundred billion dollars mm. for for the cause you know with, with four years or was it one billion maybe it was one billion still a lot of a lot of money like yeah. 250 million a year that's pretty large amount but like we're not doing enough right correct there there was there was no coverage on john oliver's most recent episode mm. and he tweeted and said like there's more to come like we had to film on saturday morning but like we were nine days in when he was filming yeah you know, it, it wasn't devoid of content. It, I'm going to give him a pass, though. Sure, at fine. At least this time. Because, like, he's covered this. It's different now. We I have understand. everyone's ear. I understand. Everyone is listening, man. This is topical. This is the most spoken about thing, right? So, like, it's not covered there. It's not covered on the Patriot Act on Netflix. Not even mentioned. Like, at least at least John Oliver did a one-minute mention of mm -hmm. it, right? Mm -hmm. Not even mentioned on the Patriot Act. But coronavirus was covered on both for the last eight weeks. Yeah. Right? Take it even further. Where's Colin Kaepernick? Where's Colin Kaepernick? Mm. He is on the right side of history, man. Like his demonstration is now absolutely being regarded as the poster child for why peaceful protest doesn't work. Yeah. Because it just gets dismissed. So there are no sports taking place right now. How is he not the face all over sports media right now or otherwise? And again, I think it's a supply and demand problem, right? There is such high demand for all of these activists right now. And there's such low supply where maybe they are better served or maybe they believe at least they're better served to be at rallies, to be the, the, the ones leading from the front. And that's fine. It, it's not my place to judge how a movement mm -hmm. takes place, right? But what I'm saying is I don't know who to turn to as somebody who's interested in learning more. What would you say then to the people that are like, okay, but Martin Luther King was in the rallies. Malcolm X was in the rallies. Like these people were with us. There was like, no social media. That was how you got the message across back then. Right. What I'm saying is as white people who may not be willing to lay their life on the line and fight for a cause, we have platforms. So the best thing a John Oliver can do, the best thing that, uh, you know, and credit to Bill Simmons and, and the ringer for having, uh, Van Jones and um, I can't recall her name uh, on the Higher Learning podcast speaking about these issues. Mm -hmm. uh, but the best thing that we can do 
when we have the ear of the captive. It's why we're doing this podcast today, right? This isn't comfortable. We're not doing ourselves any services right now. More comfortable for me than it is for you. Sure, sure. I'm in a hot seat. Uh, and, you know, it's, I'm not doing myself necessarily any services. I think you're coming off great, to be honest with you. I don't, I don't think that you... I don't think you sound like the people that the Black Lives Matter are targeting. That's fair. What I recognize personally is the last thing I want to hear is more white rhetoric on race, mm. right? So like, I don't feel like this is my platform to speak on. I pushed hard. I mean, there was a point where I wanted you to do the show alone. I would have done it, but I think it would have at the it would have looked like you were, yeah, yeah. running away from the issue. I understand. Yeah, I understand. I, I'm just saying that, like, I get it. I'm sensitive to the issues that are taking place, but I'm also a, a poker player at heart. I understand game theory at heart, right? And I understand the role emotion plays in all of this, mm-hmm. but I also recognize that one side gets to kind of funnel and target their emotion into foot soldiers. Right, they're moving pieces. Right. Right. Let's play the Killer Mike video. The next thing is making sure you exercise your political bully power and going to local elections and beating up the politicians that you don't like. You got a prosecutor sent your partner to jail and you know it was bull****. Put a new prosecutor in there. Now's your election to do it. You want a different senator that's more progressive that pulls marijuana through? Now is the time to do that. But it is not time to burn down your own home. So his messaging was like, listen, we're not doing it the right way. Go home, strategize, get out, and vote the people out. I want to close that discussion because I think we had a lot of, are we following the right strategy? Are we not? At least, the, the, the least we can do is understand your opposition's strategy, right? What what is their game plan to flesh you out, mm-hmm. uh, and then either match or counter? We do this every day, yeah. right? This is this is our business. This is what we do, right? Either you're going to play game theory optimal and just like zero for zero, or we're gonna find exploits to to figure out where their holes are. And that's really what the game is right now. Yep. Is you don't agree with this with that side. That side is not one person. That side is an entity. Of groups of people that don't necessarily want you to accomplish your goal. Right. They benefit from the repression. So the now we have to just say like, okay, this is their strategy top to bottom. Are there holes? Either we're going to match or we're going to exploit. And then where are those exploits? And I think that's what Killer Mike is is trying to say. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think that, you know, just to put a button in it, I think empathy is the exploit. I think the fact that people are human is what allows us to find better strategies that aren't necessarily theory optimal, right? And right now, the the Black Lives Matter movement has everybody's ear. Anybody with a soul that cares about their fellow man is listening and listening intently and willing to, you know, at least do what they consider to be their part, even if their part's not necessarily enough. I want to ask you a couple questions then. Uh, what are your thoughts... I have two closing things. First of all, we had a pretty heated discussion on on our group chat on having very conservative right-wing people on a platform where clearly we're leaning the other way. Mm-hmm. I The reason I, I asked this is because if we build an echo chamber, that's a negative. 
But then the other part is if we give people that are radical a platform, the people listening are listening to this and potentially triggering something in them that's saying like, oh, okay, I align with that. Sure. What are your thoughts on having people that are pretty much radically the other way? I, I think discourse reigns supreme over everything and it's not our job to control reactions. So where we view these people as radical to the extreme right, they likely view a lot of what we talk about as radically left, right? And the issue is when two sides just see each other as radical, there is absolutely no common ground. I want to give you the argument that people use in this scenario often. For example, what's today? Today's Wednesday. Mm. If someone comes on here and says, today's Thursday, and clearly they're wrong, and they get on here again and they say, today's Thursday, next day, today's Thursday, today's Thursday, today's Thursday. Even if you prove them wrong, mm -hmm. their messaging is still has an underlying tone that the people listening to right. are saying like, oh, today's Thursday, wink, wink. Right. Like, like, yeah, yeah. like it's not, they're not, it's not a good faith argument. Sure. They're just trying to put push a message yep. on another platform Agreed. to gather more. And that's propaganda. Yep. Right. So that is the argument that I received right. saying, don't put these people on a platform because it's not a good faith argument. It is just simply propaganda. I don't know how to balance that because it's like, okay, then what do we do? Do we just separate camps for eternity or do we try to have a conversation? I think it's pretty clear that the second that you acknowledge that trying to reduce the noise of bad faith arguments that are propagandizing their agenda, you're not acknowledging that you are in turn doing the exact same thing, just the opposite, right? We are all biased creatures. We all have our beliefs and they are flawed. So our platform is going to be biased in a direction that is not neutral. There is going to be propaganda behind it. We are going to make some bad faith arguments because we're human. And the second that we shut out the opposition from being able to do the same, we just create a hard divide where no one's listening to each other any longer. There is no middle ground. There is no compromise. Someone just has to win. And that's the easiest path to war, right? Fact of the matter is, if you let people speak and speak openly, bad arguments will be refuted time and time and time again. And sure, stupid people will listen to bad arguments and they will adopt them as their own. But we have no control over that. And censorship certainly is not the path to somehow gaining more control over the stupid, mm. right? Because that's ultimately what you're arguing, uh, not you, but like what is being presented to me right now is what's up for grabs is the attention of stupid people. And directing their narrative is very critical at this time. So we should not allow them to be subjected to what we deem to be bad faith arguments from a side that is the wrong side in our opinion. And instead, we should subject them to what we deem to be good faith arguments from the right side. We don't get to make that call. And the second that you engage in mind control or manipulation of that tactic, 
you are just giving in to a losing proposition, in my opinion. Okay. The other side also has an open invite onto the podcast. So I'm curious what the next few weeks are going to bring. I'm a little bit afraid as well. And I'm afraid of looking at the comments of this <laughs> podcast, to be fair. Uh, okay. I guess I'll make this announcement that I'm not necessarily sure the direction this podcast is going to take because it's been two weeks. We didn't even talk about it. I don't even want anybody. I don't, I swear if anyone in there wrote about ace queen, <laughs> like, it's a wrap. Um, we'll have plenty of poker talk. Yeah. You know, WSOP starting a new circuit starting tomorrow. I'll be streaming probably daily. This is the thing. Um, I am okay. Like if we don't, I don't think every podcast needs to talk about poker. And I don't think every podcast needs to talk about non-poker. Sure. I think what it is, is that at the end of the day, this community is, out of all the communities I've known, one of the best in terms of problem solving, one of the best in terms of discourse, one of the best in terms of uh, coming as a collective and solving issues. The reason the company is named Solve for Why is exactly what it, what it, what it, the words say. Right, we're trying to get to the bottom of things, solve where the where the issues lie, and reverse engineer a problem set. If you don't enjoy that, then I think you're probably in the wrong community, right? right. So it, it's a, I think it, it's come to a point where everyone's like, oh, why is our community not bigger? Why don't we? Why are not bigger influencers? Why don't we? We need bigger things for us as a unit because we're valued we value ourselves so high right as intellects that begins with giving people the opportunity to step outside this drawing box that you've given them right at this point we've come to a point where we're mature enough as as people and in in game theory in our respective lines of work that we say like hey we could probably do other things as well you know like the mark cubans of the world shamas of the world they're not one centered thing, right? Elon Musk is not only in PayPal, only in SpaceX. Like they do other things, right? So I think we got to a point where people are not only able to be one thing. And I think we need to accept that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's my argument for not talking about poker this week. Yeah. And to double down on what you're saying about the community, my big objective with doing this podcast is recognizing that this community is intelligent, it's wealthy, and it's white. And those first, first two things are tremendous resources. Maybe even all three things lend themselves to being tremendous resources for the Black Lives Matter movement. And currently, we're putting out a lot of fodder and a lot of rhetoric on social media saying we stand for the cause, or this is inexcusable these things that are occurring are unjust whatever the case may be but for the most part we're not mobilized mm. so i just wanted to put forth good faith arguments that would allow this collective who are watching to recognize that we have a lot of things in our favor that can be leveraged in order to enact big change down the line if we just start to take some small steps forward to leverage those resources Absolutely. And look, I'm going to I'm going to make this kind of announcement real quick. If something happens this week, 
I will be in this seat immediately. Yeah. I'm not going to wait until Wednesday to make another podcast. Like something happens tomorrow night. We'll be here Friday morning and that's how it's going to be. And I think that's something that you and I have agreed upon and said like, okay, look, we're going to, we're going to do our best to cover things and talk about things as things happen. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if things stay status quo, we'll be here Wednesday. So it's a lot of responsibility on us, but I think uh, I think we're up for it. So thank you for getting in the hot seat and, and <laughs> doing what you do. So with that said, we will be back as soon as possible. Good night and good luck.